Welcome to Drawing It Up, presented by Ball Things Considered. I'm your host, Nick Demento, and guys, I'm pretty freaking excited because we've made it. After the longest season ever, filled with a four-month gap because of the coronavirus pandemic, we're finally here. The NBA Finals. We're down to two teams, and at the end of the day, one of them will be holding the Larry O'Brien Trophy. So what I'm looking to do today is to take a look at our two teams, the Los Angeles Lakers and the Miami Heat, and take a look at how these rosters were formed, how these organizations run themselves, and how these things led these teams going all the way through their conferences and making the finals. Every team that makes the finals or a championship in any sport takes their own unique path, but there's always something that we can learn from these paths and hopefully incorporate into our own teams, our own organizations, as we hope to one day be in the position that they're in now. So without further ado, let's get started with the underdogs, the Miami Heat. I do want to point out the slight irony in the fact that this finals matchup contains the two teams that LeBron has left the Cleveland Cavaliers for. So sorry, Cleveland fans. Now, Miami actually has something in common with Cleveland in that they're one of the teams that LeBron has left. And if we look at Cleveland, the two times LeBron has left, they've gone from finals contender to absolute bottom of the league. But when we look at Miami, Miami never really had that ultimate drought. Certainly since they lost LeBron in 2014, they've missed the playoffs a couple times. But they never truly tanked. They never absolutely cratered out. And that can be a testament of just how stable the Miami Heat is as an organization. Besides the San Antonio Spurs, the Heat might be the most consistent and stable organization in the league. So let's take a look at that. We see team president Pat Riley, an honored coach and executive in the league, has been with the Heat for over 25 years. Their GM, Andy Ellisberg, has been around the Heat for the team's entire 32-year existence. Their director of college and pro scouting is in his 30th year there. And their coach, Eric Spolstra, has been the coach since 2008, so 12 years, but has been with the franchise for 25 years, since 1995. So when I look at the Heat as an organization, there isn't a bunch of front office or coaching turnover Because everyone in the front office, they know each other well, they know what they want to do, and more importantly, they don't have to spend time bickering about decisions because they know how to work together and cooperate so well. Decades and decades of experience with one another tends to do that for any business, organization, or team. And another thing we get with this kind of stable organization is that the Miami Heat have always been known as a team with their own distinct culture. And this was a culture that was established long before LeBron James was there and has existed long after he left. And it's an ultimate culture based on doing whatever it takes to win and working and grinding and doing whatever we have to take to be the best players we can be, to be the best team we can be. Now, when LeBron James left... The Heat could have easily gone the way of Cleveland and just been like, well, the best player in the league is is gone. What are we going to do? We might as well start from scratch. They could have gotten rid of Dwayne Wade, could have gotten rid of all of their good players and just decided to tank. Go for a bunch of first-round picks, 
try to build from the ground up. But their culture dictated that they couldn't do that. No matter what kind of roster they were putting on the floor, and they've had some rosters that are definitely subpar rosters. They've missed the playoffs a couple times since LeBron left. But these rosters were always competitive. In the 2016-17 season, they started out 11-30. and Now, if I look at an 11-30 and team made up of a bunch of rookies, sophomores, young players in the league, I could easily think that, why don't we just bench a lot of these guys, just see what kind of pick we can get, play the odds. But no. The Heat decided that they were going to keep playing as hard as they could. They were going to figure this thing out and win now. And actually ended up making a 30-11 run down the stretch to end the season at 41-41. And they only missed out on the playoffs because of a tiebreaker between them and Chicago. I truly believe this kind of mentality and this kind of culture is a huge reason the Miami Heat are in the finals right now. Because when it comes down to these big games... These guys are used to that feeling that we have to do this to win. They're able to remove themselves from the glamour of the situation because it's just a game like any other. And what are they going to do for any other game? They're going to play as hard as they fucking can. Because whether it's the middle of the season or the middle of the playoffs, losing is just straight up unacceptable to the Heat. Now, that's not to say that the Heat have always won because of this mentality. At some point, you have to have the roster to win. So how did they build this roster? And it really starts in their scouting department. I mean, the Heat have just nailed pick after pick after pick. And that's not because they had the number one pick in the draft. Since this was a Heat team that was always competitive, unless they got some lucky roll of the dice, or I guess in this case, ping pong balls, they were never going to get the number one pick. And that's not what the roster is made of. This roster, especially the young guys, are made up of guys who were picked in the middle of the first round after the star players have been picked. In 2015, they get Justice Winslow with the 10th pick and Josh Richardson with the 40th pick. In 2017, they get Bam Adebayo with the 14th pick. And in 2019, they get the man that put up freaking 37 points in the Eastern Conference Finals as a damn rookie, Tyler Hero with the 13th pick. This goes to show that you don't need to tank to win in this league. Because it's not just about what pick you're making. It's about nailing that pick. In 2017, the number one pick in the NBA draft is Markel Fultz, who has barely made an impact in the league. He's been getting better, but that's just what it is. I would take Bam Adebayo over Markel Fultz right now any day of the week. And this is just a testament to how strong the Miami Heat are in scouting. And not only is it just scouting, because you can draft players all you want. You have to give them the tools to succeed. And because the Heat have this win-now, win-at-all-costs culture, this grinded-out culture, they've challenged these young guys to make themselves better, to improve in the areas where they may have been weak coming into the draft, but they've made them strengths as they've grown as NBA players. So the Heat have been able to take these guys later in the draft, wherever they come from, and help them develop, put them in a system that works for them. A good coach and a good organization doesn't just have a unique system that they teach to NBA players. They create a system that is best for the players in front of them. 
because that will help those players grow. And that is what Eric Spolstra and Pat Riley have done. They have drafted these guys knowing how they fit into the Heat system and taught them how they can succeed in it. Now, to move on from these young guys, I do want to point out that with the Heat, when I'm saying the priority is on winning, and the Heat are unwavering in their position that they are going to do what is best for Miami Heat as a franchise, not for the players on their team, not for the people in their organization. They are going to do what they believe is best for the Miami Heat. Now, if we're looking for an example of just how unwavering the Heat are in their commitment to winning, we can look to probably their franchise's most beloved and most accomplished player ever in Dwayne Wade. Now, by the time LeBron left in 2014, Dwayne Wade was already on the decline. His athleticism, his pop was already starting to slow down. And in the 2016 offseason, Miami could have just signed him to a huge deal that lasted till the end of his career because thank you, Dwayne Wade. The unfortunate side of that is that you would be giving a lot of money to an older guy and honestly, probably just completely handicap yourself as a franchise. But the Heat said no. That wasn't the right decision for the Heat if they wanted to win and win soon. So they decided to let him go. They let him go to the Chicago Bulls for a year. They actually ended up getting him back the season after for what was kind of a glorified farewell tour. But it shows just how the Heat are willing to do the unpopular thing just to win. They were ripped apart by ESPN, analysts, people in the press, you know, because they didn't stay loyal to their guy. People really thought that Dwayne Wade was the Heat. But at the end of the day, the Heat knew that they were a team that was there long before Dwayne Wade. And they were a team that was going to be there long after Dwayne Wade. So they couldn't compromise their future just to pay respects to the past. And while this is an unpopular position to take, most teams would just want you to just sign the guy into affinity, just out of respect for what he's done. But if that's going to hurt your franchise at the end of the day, the right decision is to just move on. But now, there's actually another benefit to letting Dwayne Wade go to Chicago. You see, when Dwayne Wade went to Chicago, he took a piece of that Heat culture with him. It's what he had grown up in as a player, and he really tried to impress that culture among his fellow players with the Bulls. And one of those players was Jimmy Butler. Now, Dwayne Wade and Jimmy Butler would end up losing in the first round of the playoffs that year. But the seeds of Miami had already been planted in Jimmy Butler's mind. And after a short tenure in first Minnesota and then the Philadelphia, Jimmy Butler finally came home to the Heat. Now, it wasn't easy at all. Pat Riley essentially had to move mountains to clear up the cap space so that Jimmy Butler could come be a part of the Heat. And Pat Riley did this not just because he knew Jimmy Butler was a great player, but because Jimmy Butler is a goddamn alpha. He is just an alpha predator in every single way. In fact, I would say that out of the entire NBA right now, Jimmy Butler, his approach to the game and his mentality is the closest thing we have to the mentality we saw of Koba Bryant, that Mamba mentality, that killer mentality. 
that got the Lakers to five titles. Now, my favorite story about Jimmy Butler came from his time in Minnesota. So he gets traded to Minnesota, and he's joining a team with two previous rookies of the year with Andrew Wiggins and Carl Anthony Towns. Both of these guys are seen as the faces of the franchise. Jimmy Butler is supposed to be the piece supporting them. Now, while we don't know exactly what happened in the locker room, it's safe to say that Jimmy Butler didn't exactly click with these two guys. And a lot of people speculate that Jimmy Butler thought these guys were kind of soft and they weren't willing to do and really grind to do what it takes to win. And my favorite story from the whole Jimmy Butler and Minnesota debacle is that one day Jimmy Butler in practice decides to take basically guys from the practice squad, from the absolute end of the roster, and play five-on-five against Andrew Wiggins, Carl Anthony Towns, and the other starters on the Timberwolves team. Now, I would kill to find this film, because apparently Jimmy Butler and a bunch of scrubs ran these guys out the fucking gym. And what this tells me about Jimmy Butler is that he doesn't care who you are. He doesn't care how good you are. He doesn't care what the media says about you. He doesn't care if you have titles or awards, rookies of the year, MVPs. He's coming for blood. He is coming to take your freaking head off. When Jimmy Butler was in Minnesota, they were a four seed in the Western Conference. After he gets traded away to Philadelphia, they completely crater and haven't even been in playoff contention since. Now, some reports say that Jimmy Butler also had the same tension with his teammates in Philadelphia, that he didn't like the culture there, that he didn't think they could do what it takes to win. When he was in Philadelphia, they lose off a three-bounce shot in Game 7 against the eventual NBA champion, the Toronto Raptors. The year after Jimmy Butler leaves... They get their absolute asses kicked in the first round. And if you're an NBA fan, it kind of goes without saying that ever since Jimmy Butler left the Bulls, that they've been completely irrelevant. So I'm not going to make any strange conclusions about that, but there's a common thread here. The guy just knows how to win. And when you combine Jimmy Butler with the Heat's culture, it's a match made in heaven. You have... The player to lead your team to enforce that culture to make everyone around him on this team better. And so at the end of the day, the Heat team that have made the finals, they're not dangerous because they have one guy. This team is built from the ground up with guys that want to win and know how to play in order to win. Everyone knows their role. Jimmy Butler on any given night can have a bad night. These other guys can lift him up. And even if Jimmy Butler or Bam Adebayo or someone else is having a bad scoring night, they're always going to impact the game in some way, whether that's by defense, rebounding, whatever. They're never going to be a complete zero in the game. If Jimmy Butler can't score, maybe Tyler Hero picks up those points. If Bam Adebayo isn't getting assists at night, Maybe Goran Dragic gets those assists. They are well put together so that not one guy has to carry them to victory. They all are in this together. And not only is this team able to lift each other up, they're probably the most adaptable team in the NBA. They can throw defensive lineups at you with a crazy zone. They can throw shooting lineups at you where 
everyone on the floor can shoot threes. They have multiple lineups where you have guys like Goran Dragic, Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo with multiple ball handlers that can really make defenses pay. And with a quality coach like Eric Spolstra, he has the complete arsenal to do whatever he wants. Eric Spolstra is like a kid in a candy shop. If he's playing the Lakers, he'll grab one offense, one defense. If he's playing the Clippers, he'll grab another one. The Heat are so tuned and they're so adaptable that these guys can switch it up against whoever they're playing. And we saw that through their entire journey to the playoffs. Like We're talking about a team that was the fifth seed that took out the Milwaukee Bucks, who everyone thought was just an absolute juggernaut and was going to storm through the Eastern Conference. And they took out one of the best young and upcoming teams in the NBA in the Boston Celtics. They were able to beat these teams because they were able to adjust to the best way to play that team. And now they have to adjust to a new opponent, the Los Angeles Lakers, who we're going to talk about after a short break. Drawing It Up has been brought to you by our friends over at Don't Know Radio. Don't Know Radio was just voted as a top 10 up-and-coming podcast of 2020. My very good friend David Vogel and his buddy Kevin have created a place where you can listen and feel better about yourself and what's going on. Everyone acts like they've got it all figured out, but these two guys just tell it like it is. You can find Don't Know Radio wherever you listen to your podcasts, and make sure you follow at DKRadio11 on Twitter and Instagram, and give them a listen. You won't regret it. Welcome back, everyone. Now that I've fleshed out all the lessons that we can learn from the Miami Heat's path to the finals, we're going to take a look at their opponent, the number one seed in the West, the Los Angeles Lakers. Now, to be honest with everyone, I'm not going to spend as much time on the Lakers because it's kind of simple. They have two of the top five players in the NBA, in LeBron James and Anthony Davis. And that's kind of the team. And when I look back at the Lakers' path to the finals and how they've built this roster, it comes back to these two guys. So let's start with the greatest player of this generation, LeBron James. Before LeBron got to the Lakers, they were kind of in a spiral. After Kobe Bryant retired, the Lakers had made some bad signings in Luel Deng and Timothy Mozgov. And while this team had added a bunch of top draft picks, such as Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, D'Angelo Russell, while all these guys were good, they weren't living up to the hype, or at least to the spotlight that comes with being a Laker. So the Lakers didn't really have time to wait for guys to develop. They needed to take a swing. And it's also important to note that for years, the Lakers have been kind of bottoming out, missing the playoffs, while the team next door, the Clippers, had just gone through its run with Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, and that run was finally going down. They had traded Chris Paul, were about to trade other guys, and that run was finally over. And it was time for the Lakers to take back LA. So how do you do that? You signed the best player in the NBA. The best player in our generation. Now the LeBron to LA rumors had started well even before his last year in Cleveland. Once it seemed like he couldn't win with the Cavaliers anymore, his eyes went to the West Coast. To the Lakers with 
one of the most historic franchises in the NBA where if LeBron can win here, that is the chance for him to step up his legacy and maybe a chance to finally defeat his greatest foe, Michael Jordan. But LeBron wasn't just going to go to the Lakers if there was no chance in winning. What he did see was that the team was already starting to fix some of its mistakes. They had traded away Jordan Clarkson and Larry Nance Jr., some of their worst contracts. And they had all these young assets, these young guys that had a bright future. They just kind of needed someone to push them over the edge. And so comes LeBron. And with him, he brings along kind of an island of misfit toys. They also signed guys like Rondo, JaVale McGee, Lance Stevenson, Michael Beasley. All guys that kind of had iffy records in the league and wasn't sure how they were going to fit with LeBron. And to be honest, it didn't really work that first year with LeBron. That first year of LeBron with the Lakers is the only time this decade LeBron has missed the finals. And the Lakers missed the playoffs entirely. The Lakers had had this so-so season, and once LeBron started dealing with injuries, sort of about a month or a month or two before the season ended, LeBron was just called off entirely, just said that he was going to miss the end of the season. Now, if we look a little bit into this, it may not have just been because of LeBron's injuries that he didn't play. There's ways that the Lakers benefited from this because of the fact that LeBron wasn't playing, the fact that they could lose less. It was a sort of semi-tank that they definitely benefited from. The first way they kind of benefited from this is that the Lakers' eyes were already set on Anthony Davis' trade. He had already made it known that he wanted out of New Orleans. New Orleans just kind of grounded its feet and wouldn't trade him at the trade deadline. So the Lakers knew they would have to do it during the offseason. So by the time LeBron had called it off, they knew that this was their goal in the offseason. Now the Pelicans aren't going to trade a top five player in the league unless they're getting something substantial back. And especially since this was a team that was going to be picking in the lottery, you're looking for young guys that you can build your team around in the future. Now, because LeBron is out, this basically serves as a impromptu tryout the last couple games of the season was a tryout for guys like Lonzo Ball Brandon Ingram and Josh Hart to display their skills and sell themselves to the Pelicans now they might not have known that if they played well they were more likely to be traded but this definitely upped the stakes it made their value much greater when the Lakers called asking for Anthony Davis now, LeBron sitting out also meant that the Lakers missed the playoffs, and they were in the draft lottery. And right there, probably the luckiest thing to happen to the Lakers in a long time happened, in that the Lakers jumped up into the top four and had the number four pick, while the Pelicans get the number one pick. Now, I am in no ways a believer that the NBA is rigged, and I will except no slander on that part. The game is just a game. The ping pong balls went that way. But the impact of the Lakers having the four pick and the Pelicans having the number one pick, and that impact 
on the Pelicans' hesitance to trade Anthony Davis is obvious. Because the Pelicans knew that they could draft Zion Williamson number one, a power forward, the exact guy that you would want to replace Anthony Davis, it makes Anthony Davis more tradable because you're actually, you know you're going to replace him with something that's hopefully just as good. We don't know what Zion will be yet, but coming into the draft, he's probably one of the most talked about and discussed and exciting players since LeBron James came out of high school. And now that the Lakers have the number four pick, which the Pelicans ended up trading to the Hawks and the pick became DeAndre Hunter, having that number four pick sweetened the pot even more. The Pelicans are a lot more inclined to say yes to a deal that includes a number four pick than if the Lakers were throwing in the pick they should have had, which would have been like 10, 11, 12-ish in that range. And so with that, we now have a bunch of young players that have shown that they can grow and have shown that in a system that works for them, they can benefit. And then you have the number four pick. And therefore, in the summer of 2019, the Pelicans traded Anthony Davis to the Lakers for Brandon Ingram, Lonzo Ball, Josh Hart, and three first-round picks, which would be probably the greatest haul of all time until about two weeks later in the Paul George trade. We will examine that trade in another episode. So now that we have LeBron and Anthony Davis, you know that you have two of the top five guys in the NBA. So now your job is to fill out the rest of the roster with guys that complement them, guys that can do enough so that these guys have some room to operate. A superstar is no good if he's completely by himself. If he's playing with just a bunch of freaking scrubs, then every defense, when they come into that game, comes in with the game plan of, we're just going to swarm him, stop him, and make everybody else try to beat us. Not only are teams not able to do that to the Lakers because the Lakers have two superstars, you can't just key in on Anthony Davis because LeBron's going to kill you and vice versa. But because the Lakers have built their roster in a way that there are other guys that can make them pay. They filled out the rest of their starting lineup with guys like Danny Green, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, sort of 3 and D players who, while they definitely haven't been playing as efficiently as they have before in their career, they still are providing impact to that team. And then you also have young guys like Kyle Kuzma, who was drafted late first round, who can really provide a spark off the bench. He hasn't been the guy that is going to get you 20 a night, but he's a guy that every once in a while can pop off for 25-30. And if the Lakers have that, they're winning that game. And finally, I would be remiss if I didn't shout out my fellow bald man, or at least, dude, just shave your head. It's, it's, you're bald. Alex Caruso, who has just completely outplayed his expectations. And lastly, we have Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee, two bigs that are just completely playing their role. They know they don't need to be doing anything special. They need to sit at the rim, block shots, defend the rim. And whenever someone throws up a lob, you dunk it down their freaking throats. So with the Lakers' path, it really was defined by a signing and a trade. But we have seen that the Lakers have done their best to maximize those guys so that the Lakers have the best chance at winning. And it ended up in the number one seed in the West, 
and now the finals. So now that we've charted out the path that both of these teams took, what's going to actually happen? So really quick before we end, I just want to give my takes on the Heat Lakers series. Because this is a very interesting series to me because while if I'm lining up every player on these two teams in a row and I'm doing them in a draft, I know the first guys I'm drafting are both Lakers. It's LeBron and AD. But the next five, six guys might all be Miami Heat players. So like I've said before, Miami doesn't have the superstar power the Lakers do, but they have that depth. They have the guys that can compete. And they've shown that they're able to beat superstars. They took out Giannis Antetokounmpo, the two-time reigning MVP, in the second round. But if you want my personal prediction, I'm predicting that the Los Angeles Lakers will win the NBA title in six games. I just believe that LeBron and AD are such caliber of players that as long as the guys around them can just give them enough to stay above water, that they'll be able to take it to the Heat, that the Heat just won't be able to keep up. But there's definitely some X factors to look out for, that if you're watching the game, these are the parts of the game that I would look at to see if you can get a grasp on how the series is going to go as you're watching these games. First off is going to be how Bam Adebayo actually plays. The Lakers have a bunch of athletic and mobile bigs that can really lock him up. And at the very least, while they may not be able to minimize his scoring, they could minimize his playmaking ability, especially if the Lakers move Anthony Davis to the center position most of the time. But even if it's Dwight Howard or JaVale McGee guarding Bam Adebayo, he's going to be at a size differential that he hasn't really faced the entire playoffs. And if you can negate the playmaking impact that Bam has, then you really put pressure on some of these other guys to make their own shots. Another X factor is going to be the Miami Heat's guard play. Now, since the Lakers' strong suit is obviously in their forwards and bigs with LeBron and AD, where they do have a weakness is with their guards, with Rajon Rondo, Davis Caldwell-Pope, Alex Caruso. And so it's going to be a big deal whether or not these guys can match up with the likes of Goran Dragic, with Duncan Robinson, a knockdown three-point shooter, Tyler Hero, a guy that as a rookie put up 37 points in the Eastern Conference Finals. If those guys for Miami are really able to take off, Miami will start putting up these threes, start creating a big lead, which will just make a bigger and bigger hole that the Lakers will have to dig their way out of, especially since the Lakers haven't been the best three-point shooting team. A final thing to look out for is how does Miami change how they play based on what the Lakers are doing. In the Boston Celtics series, we saw Miami use a lot of zone that they didn't use against the Bucks. So just from a coaching standpoint, what is Miami's game plan against these superstars? Will they try to make the rest of the roster make them pay? Will they try to make challenge the rest of the roster to win the title? And then if they do do that, how's LeBron, Anthony Davis, and their coach Frank Vogel going to adjust? And one last thing that can't go without mentioning is what does LeBron look like in the finals in year 17? Because if he looks like how he's been the past couple of years, I think it's going to be lights out. 
And that'll be our show today. Thank you so much for listening. Please check out BallThingsConsidered.com for any news and articles related to NBA. Please check out our other podcasts. Thank you to Kyle Hunter for art. Thank you to Noah Thompson for sound. And thank you, most of all, the listener. And until next time, this is Drawing It Up. Thank you.